Welcome, everybody, to Campus Preacher Live. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're going to be discussing today is how the progressives... Hey, wait, one second. I got... Uh, Oh, I got to kill my volume. That's on my. That's on me. That is all. This is what happens when you go live and you're learning as you go. So, what I'm seeking to discuss here today is the reality that progressives uh, will often take the term "image of God" to push an agenda. So, if you ever go to like Sojourners, I think it's Sojourner.net. If you ever read like Ron Sider's stuff, he'll often appeal to the image of God. And I've been thinking about this for a while because. It's not even so much, and when you hear them say image of God, it's never image of God. It's always imago dei. They they always give you a little Hebrew in it as if it's a little more authoritative. And and when you hear it, it can't just be, you just can't hear imago dei. You got to picture yourself on like a a rooftop in New York City or in LA and you're drinking your wine, you're eating some cheese, you got your trans flag there, you got your gay flag there, you got BLM there. Kind of the whole network of isms is there and you're just dropping, yeah, you all are the imago dei. That's kind of how it has to be said is the imago dei. And one of the things I've kind of noticed uh, as a trend over the years, so in going to seminary, coming out of seminary, I've seen quite a few people uh, commit adultery or leave their families. And interestingly enough, more often than not, those individuals who were you know, more or less conservative, Bible-believing Christians, um, if they had not completely left the faith after that event, they at least go fairly progressive. They get into BLM, they get into LGBTQ stuff, and they uh, kind of step away from the law of God, and they begin to appeal to the Imago Dei, is what they begin to do. And it stood out to me because a few years ago, um, my Cleveland Indians, I think it was 2016, lost the uh, World Series to the Chicago Cubs in seven games. And we sh- I think we're up 3-1 at one point. We should have won the series, but we are uh, losing uh, seven games. And the MVP of that was a guy named Ben Zobrist, I believe is his name. And about a week ago or two weeks ago, I heard a, a story about Ben where he and his wife, I guess, were in marriage counseling. And his wife, who at the time just seemed like, she seemed like a, uh, what, what would you like? Kind of hear her, just just your average evangelical megachurch type of woman, if that makes sense. Just kind of like the big hair and, uh, you know, wanted the singing career. It was uh, kind of a lot about her. And so, like, girl, wash your face, that sort of stuff. And that was kind of her disposition, I, I kind of thought. But you're like, ah, they're Bible-believing Christians and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, turns out they're in marriage counseling. She's committing adultery with their counselor. And their counselor at the same time is stealing money from Ben's foundation. And uh, so th- this came across, like, on my Instagram or my Twitter feed. And so I start to read the story a little bit. And I go to her, um, what do you call that, her Instagram page. And I felt like, and fascinating enough, here she is, lo and behold, she's now pro-LGBTQ, and her stuff is about BLM and oppression and all this sort of stuff. And it kind of fit the profile. Obviously, a little bit different. She's not uh, a man leaving her family or whatever it is. But here we have an adulteress um, now going woke in her theology. Um, And she's still trying to keep the Christian element to it. And so what I want to do is read her letter, because I think in many ways— she's not sophisticated enough to dress it up. Then what I want to move into was a little bit of some of the controversy surrounding the SBC and Ed Litton and uh, J.D. Greer, particularly in some of their comments regarding we whisper where the Bible whispers and we shout where the Bible shouts and, and kind of see how even if they're not, they're, they're smart enough that to be this blunt and this is kind of naive in their description of what they're doing. 
But I would want to argue what they're actually doing is laying the seeds uh, for Julian. I think it's Julianne or Juliana's thinking is what we need to realize is taking place. So let me read her uh, letter and then we can kind of get into it a little bit more. She says this. Hello, friend. This is a community. This is her Instagram page. I don't know how communal it is, but it just says uh, this is a community where all faiths, every gender, race, ability, sexual orientation, and creative expression are welcome. To address your concern directly, I am LGBTQ affirming and celebrating in my personal life and here on this platform and celebrating. And I don't know if that means she's now LGBTQ, that that's what she's doing uh, in her personal life and here on this platform. Uh, the verse you quoted, uh, so it's originally, I guess she's uh, writing somebody in the context of an email who uh, maybe appealed to Romans 1 regarding homosexuality. It says, the verse you quoted is an easy out button to permit oppression within the church, within the Christian church. I know because I come from it and was myself complicit within it for years. I could point out that the word unnatural in the Romans passage you reference is the same word used for the horror Paul expresses over women having unnatural short hair. I could also point out, so even like that sort of thing, let's, let's grant that there are a bunch of Christians who are uh, were totally wrong on the length of some woman's hair. Uh, that does not prove that Romans 1 is saying homosexuality is okay, but it's kind of a separate issue. Paul expects uh, women uh, have unnatural short hair. I could also point out that the Bible arguably never addresses loving and committed homosexual relationships, which is just uh, kind of BS. They, they they knew those things were taking place in the first century, they, 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 and that stuff still would have been opposed. Uh, real simply, Leviticus says a man should not lie with a man the way he does a woman. It doesn't say uh, that, you know anything about committed relationships or merely abusive relationships, um, but the very nature of the act, homosexual, and this is going to all tie into the image of God stuff uh, here in a minute, uh, committed homosexual relations. But I think perhaps the clearest thing I can say is that I reject any scripture, plain and simple, at least she's honest, upfront. But I think perhaps the clearest thing I can say is that I reject any scripture from the Bible or elsewhere that promotes hate, inequality, or oppression. Therefore, I reject and do not adhere to the verses in the Bible that condone slavery, genocide, rape, female subjugation, and every type of oppression. My God, my Jesus, is love. The absolute truth that I live by is imago dei. I speak about this a lot on my page. So anything out of alignment with love or in conflict with imago dei is not for me and is never something I will support, no matter how many Bible verses are thrown at it. I hope this helps clarify and explain why you will find little support here for a love the sinner, hate the sin kind of perspective. You are absolutely welcome here, but homophobia is not. And so, Again, she's not real sophisticated. So think about how she, she ends. She starts with, this is a community where all faiths, does that include the homophobic faith, every gender, race, ability, and sexual orientation, and creative expression, would that include homophobia, uh, are welcome. Then she ends it with, you are absolutely welcome here, but homophobia is not. So if, if, if we bring this expression of ourselves, that is, quote unquote, homophobia to the table, are we still welcome? And, and this is where I think one of the central elements that we have to realize in these discussions 
is they're often going to want to push back at us with regards to respect that we're creating some sort of binary and that binary is going to ultimately be oppressive in some way. But the reality of it is, uh, Jules, as she goes by here, by love we go, Jules, Jules here cannot escape a binary and she cannot escape the reality of excluding somebody from her. Even if it's the homophobia, she ultimately has to exclude somebody. So this, this idea of binary is inescapable. And one of the important things even when we're talking to someone like Jules, is when we say something like the Imago Dei, what do we mean by the image of God? So if we go back to Genesis 1, where I'm assuming she's getting her concept of the image of God from, she's going to have to say he made them in his image, male and female, he made them. And so the image of God does deal with sex slash gender. Uh, the, the idea that gender is separate from sex is uh, kind of a feminist construction in order to get away uh, from basically gender, quote-unquote, gender roles and having them yoked to sex. And so even if Jules wants to have the image of God as part of her discussion uh, uh, and, and part of her ethic, she has to go back to Genesis 1 and at least appeal to this verse and say, an image of God is male and female. So we have to understand, how does she get to this idea of trans and even this idea of, like, say, non-binary and this idea that of all these creative expressions of what it means to be a human being. And so the image of God is something that the left often appropriates from Ron Sider to Jules. And I would even say, I'm going to put Greer, they're marginally conservative. I don't want to overstate the case. They're, they're, they're marginally conservative on things, but they're laying the groundwork for basically the subversion of Genesis 1. And uh, we're going to look at that a little bit more. Um, but but what we have here in the image of God is is something with content, which includes righteousness, holiness, and these sorts of things. And and part of redemption, even when she says, my Jesus, what is her Jesus doing? If she's restoring us back into the image of God, what is the sense in which the image of God has been lost? And so uh, ever so briefly, one of the things that as you begin to think about the image of God and you begin to think about sexual ethics, and because our culture is in total chaos, and even the church, I will say the church has really, really failed you more often than not in setting forth an idea of creation in the context of Charles Darwin, merely as an apologetic and not necessarily a creational theology. Um, but when it comes to sex in creation, what sex was basically acceptable? What sort of sex acts were acceptable? Well, I, I think you know a little bit will be reflected in the law, but if you take Adam and Eve at the very beginning, uh, they were to be fruitful and multiply. And it even says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So I'd say in the original creation, there was no uh, father-daughter, mother-son, uh, uh, incestuous relationships. Uh, you leave your father and mother, you cleave to your wife. In cleaving to your wife, you're not going to be taking other women to yourself. So uh, uh, like polygamous relationships were not part of the original creation design, but a man would be cleaving uh, to his wife. Obviously, all the beasts of the field, they were not suitable helpmates. So that would include exclude all um, uh, bestial acts uh, as far as part of the Christian ethic for sex. And also being fruitful and multiply, homosexuals simply... It really is death. It produces death. It cannot produce life. And you can try to change the name men and women and say men are giving birth nowadays, and it's just a woman, uh, plain and simple. And so the reality of it is, going all the way back to the very beginning of creation, you have normative sexual ethics. And then what you end up having in the law and what you end up having in the church uh, in the New Testament are, are are laws and ideas that put forth basically heterosexuality as being the norm, being fruitful and multiplying as what is 
uh, normative. And so, and this idea that, uh, you know, when the left wants to appropriate the image of God language, we have to realize what they're seeking to do. And it gives, it's going to give you pause because you're like, yeah, who wants to oppress the image of God? It sounds pretty good. But what, and this is where I think it was, you know, I think it was Aristotle, but I've never been able to source it. I remember reading it in a book and a footnote one time, and I, and I believe it was Aristotle said, it's always in the particulars that men differ. So you have, Joe unbeliever or Joe leftist saying the image of God, and then you have Bible-believing Orthodox Christian that takes all the text seriously, uh, believing in the image of God. and But we differ in all the application of what that really means. And that's where we don't want a Christianity that separates itself from Torah, uh, because we want to say that in some sense, the Torah, the law, reflects God's character. Um, I, I say it probably a thousand times in these broadcasts and in uh, my podcast is the reason we don't we, we oppose uh, murder is because God is life. The reason we oppose lying uh, is because God is truth. The reason we oppose adultery uh, because God is faithful. And so um, and even we rest because God has rested and uh, we don't covet because God's made all things and we worship him supremely because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. And so all the laws are ultimately reflected in God and his character. And so we can't just separate ourselves off um, uh, from from God's character and Torah and all these sorts of things. So Jules just kind of being totally arbitrary. And at least she's, at least she admits it in selling the farm saying, look, I'm not going to take any text uh, that I think is in turn oppressive. Um, but again, she can't escape law because her law now must exclude homophobia. So this, the reality of it is all these people appealing to the Mago Dei, they're going to set forth a new law, but it's going to be humanism. It's going to be their self-law, what they determine is good, what they determine right and wrong. And that's actually going back to the very beginning. Men and women were in, in the image of God. And when uh, Satan comes along, tempts them, says, you shall be like God. And what happens? Their eyes are open and they're naked. They were already like God, uh, but they were not to determine good and evil. What Jules really wants to do here is determine good and evil. Now, emotionally, I think you can you know, give her some credit. I don't know if credit's the right word, but some understanding where she's coming from. If you are an adulterer, an adulteress, and you have been a Christian your whole life, um, I think of oftentimes being on college campuses, particularly with young Christian women, they go to college, they're sexually immoral for the first time, and then they just feel like they need to jettison the faith because their whole identity was this I'm keeping my virginity. Then they lose it. Then they have to jettison it. So here you have a woman who's been a Christian. She knows better than to commit adultery. She commits adultery, whatever's going on in her life. And so what do you do? Do you repent and bring yourself in conformity with the scriptures and God's law and his ethic and have real grace administered to you? Or do you change the substance of grace and make grace about relativism? We just accept everybody and there is, quote unquote, no law, even though law is an inescapable concept. Uh, she, she's anti-homophobia, so that's a de facto law she has to deal with. And so what I want to do um, uh, also, is what I want to discuss is um, well, there's actually two things leading into the J.D. Greer thing, uh, and this is a little bit tangential, um, but it's actually related, is um, I was having a discussion with some people last night regarding transgenderism and just kind of the uh, reality. And you have these uh, two brothers, the Wachowski brothers. I don't know what they – they go by the Wachowski sisters now. They're the ones who gave us um, The Matrix, which I have actually never, ever seen uh, The Matrix. I um, – it's one of those movies I've just never sat down to watch. And then lo and behold, they come out. So I almost feel like I should because um, when I was trying to look them up today, they were saying it was about being trans and stuff like that. But one of them actually wrote a little bit like a manifesto type thing of them becoming trans. And and I think it really sums up well. And you're going to see how this relates to some of J.D. Greer's, uh, Greer's comments here in a second. Um, but, but he ends up saying this in his kind of manifesto. He says, but these words 
transgender, and transitioned are hard for me because they both have lost their complexity and their assimilation into the mainstream. There is a lack of nuance of time and space. To be transgender is something largely understood as existing within the dogmatic terminus of male and female. So you have this binary male, you have this female, and trans is somehow this go in between. He was saying the, the, part of the problem is that you have this terminus. You have this male, female, this binary. But that goes back to the image of God. And this, and this is how it ties in the Jules comments. Jules says, hey, we want the image of God, male, female. Now you have the Wachowski brothers saying, you know, this whole idea of transgenderism, LGBTQ, is, is somewhere in this terminus that's just wrong in having it in this male and female binary. And so it's just, it's just kind of interesting. If you begin to listen to the trans people and what they're thinking through, it's a whole other philosophy. And so these progressive Christians are kind of a, just kind of a stop along the way. And he goes on to say, and the transition imparts a sense of immediacy, a before and after from one terminus to another. But the reality, my reality, is that I've been transitioning and will continue to transition all of my life. Through the infinite, it's almost like Zeno's paradoxes, uh, through the infinite that exists between male and female, as it does in the infinite between the binary of zero and one. We need to elevate the dialogue beyond the simplicity of binary. Binary is a false idol. So it's actually, I, I, I greatly appreciate this comment by Wachowski because it's at least in a sense consistent. Now, binary being a false idol, it's just binary is inescapable. Either binary is a false idol or it's not a false idol. You're kind of back at a binary. So just because you have a creator and a creature and the way God's made the world light darkness, there's just binaries that are uh, inescapable. And, I, and what we as Christians want to maintain is that the male-female binary is inescapable and the male-female binary is who and what we are and this creational aspect of us uh, is the image of God and us being physical. And this is confirmed even in basically creation and it's confirmed in the incarnation then also the resurrection. So the Christ, whole Christian storyline is gendered. Uh, the whole Christian storyline is physical. Um, and for a long time, Christians have often, I don't want to just say platonics, that's kind of may, maybe too easy, but have kind of sought to separate. You know, I remember when I was first converted, we'd often talk about saving souls. And what we meant by that was the immaterial part of man. And we couldn't wait to discard the physical body as if it was holding us back. But that's not a Christian view of the body. Yes, outwardly we released away because sin has uh, brought about corruption. Uh, but the uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that we're sown in corruption, we're raised incorruptible. We're sown in dishonor, we're raised in glory. And so the reality is this physical body will be raised. And so uh, that's kind of, uh, I think the Wachowski comments are, are pretty important uh, to our discussion. Um, and as Juan in, a, Juan in a trillion says, the future is male and female. And that's, that's actually uh, 100% correct. And this is a little tangential, but I appreciate Juan for that comment because a couple years ago when uh, the future is female, I think it was Hillary Rodham Clinton was helping that get going. And um, I remember preaching. I was preaching at James Madison uh, University. And actually, we, ha we have good news for people, even in the feminist context. The, the, you know, People who have full tilt bought trans are going to be a little bit confused. Um, but Paul kind of makes that argument a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and so when the females were pushing the future is female, well, the reality of it is, uh, as Christians, we want to maintain the future is male and female. Yes, we can hold to patriarchal position because we believe there's a natural hierarchy in the world and uh, the way God has made men and God has made women. Um, but Paul is pretty explicit in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man 
of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves is it proper for a wife to pray uh, to God with her head uncovered. Uh, but that, that basic idea that the future uh, the, and is Christian, and the future is male and female. And as Christians reproduce, um, we, we recognize as men, we recognize the dependence upon women, and women ought to be recognizing their dependence upon men. So the reality of it is... Um, uh, the, the, the future is male and female. It's not just limited to uh, female. Now, this ties into J.D. Greer. Now, the thing actually, uh, J.D. Greer, I want to talk about, he's been taking some heat for his, uh, he actually even, Jen Wilkins, I believe is who he quotes, uh, who's actually originally got it from R.C. Sproul. So in uh, R.C. Sproul in the book, uh, What the Bible Teaches or What the Bible Says, one of those two books, uh, or that I can't remember exactly the title. It's one of those two. In that book, R.C. Sproul's talk about the book of Revelation, and he says we should whisper where God whispers, and we should shout where God shouts. And basically, like we we should uh, basically major in the majors, minor in the minors. And Jen uh, Rank or Wilkin and J.D. Greer want to apply that to. Uh, homosexuality. And so they want to say, we want to shout where the Bible shouts, we want to whisper. And the Bible shouts about greed and materialism and uh, self-righteousness and da-da-da, but it whispers about sexual ethics. And the Bible simply does that. But but even on the flip side, if you take, I don't know how he's determining what the Bible shouts about, what the Bible whispers about particularly, um, but even if you take that basic idea and you go to Jesus, and one of the things he did say, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He didn't talk about bestiality. He didn't talk about pedophilia. There's a lot of things Jesus did not talk about. And just because he did not talk about it, should we therefore say, well, he's whispering about pedophilia, therefore, eh. He's whispering about you know, uh, bestiality, therefore, he hadn't talked about it, so eh. Um, but on the flip side, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he talks about hell some 70 plus times. And I think, I, I can't think of actually a place where he tells somebody, I love you. He did love Lazarus, um, and he obviously does love people, but I think love is maybe the sound 13 or 14 times um, uh, on the lips of Jesus. Uh, and so, should we shout? Should we spend more time talking about hell and just saying, well, by uh, mere word count, Jesus talks about hell more than he does love. Therefore, this is clearly what he's shouting about. And I don't think J.D. Greer uh, would go that route. Um, but what he ends up, uh, let me get this clip. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, looking for it on my screen. It's up here live. Um, and so in this clip, uh, what, so I'm ignoring, I'm setting aside the whispering part. And more what I want to get at is between Ed Litton and J.D. Greer, we're really, they're just really sloppy in their thinking. So you think of Ed Litton, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the SBC, even his church got a lot of pushback uh, when he was elected. Was that last week or two weeks ago? Uh, because his their doctrine of the Trinity was basically partialism. And so here's a guy who's now elected president of the SBC, and they don't even have like a basic statement of the Trinity Right. And then over the last day, I think they, uh, Newsweek even reported that I think they took down 140 sermons off of their YouTube page because he's been accused of plagiarism. So Ed, the new president of the SBC, is just clearly sloppy in his sermons, theologically, and everything else. And he quotes J.D. Greer. He basically kind of stole this uh, sermon from J.D. Greer. And and the thing that, that I want to highlight here is how J.D. Greer appeals to the image of God. Listen to this. And when you finally realize that in your soul, you'll stop being a judgmental, pharisaical dispenser of the law, and you'll suddenly become a gospel witness. And what he's, the, well, you'll become a, stop being a judgmental, pharisaical teacher of the law. Uh, what he's getting at there is once you realize that, uh, that you're filled with pride and idolatry and all this sort of stuff, and that you yourself are a sinner, which, you know, in a sense, 
Hopefully none of you out there would disagree uh, with that. And in any preaching of the law, it's not to be self-righteous and pharisaical. And if that's your approach, then obviously repent because uh, Jesus' worst words were for the Pharisees, the religious people who were uh, perverting uh, the law. You think of the woman caught in adultery, um, Jesus standing in the temple. Woman caught in adultery is brought to him. He writes on the ground, which is probably related to the Daniel uh, writing on the wall, and then also the writing of the Ten Commandments. And none of them are able to stone uh, the woman, are able to judge. And Jesus says, who here is to condemn you? Nobody. I don't condemn you either. Um, and if you read the book of Revelation, what ends up happening to Jerusalem? What ends up happening to the Pharisees? They get stoned. They're the adulterous generation. Um, and so the last thing you want to be is a Pharisee because they would have agreed on us on many doctrines. They would have been conservative, this, that, and the other, uh, but they were clearly perverted. They And Jesus would say, you nullify the word of God or your traditions. So clearly, as Orthodox Christians, we don't want to be that. But um, I don't think you get that in of itself by preaching the law. You get it by nullifying the word of God with your traditions. That's how you become a Pharisee. And your life will no longer be characterized by judgmentalism and fundamentalism. It'll be characterized by compassion. You'll start loving your neighbor like somebody made in the image of God and feeling compassion for them and their weakness. You will begin to treat them first and foremost like people who deserve compassion, not scorn or judgment or a political voting block that we need to marginalize. When you understand that, then what that means is that you become a person who will, for example, stand up and be among the fierce. This is, this is the part you need to hear. Advocates for the preservation of the dignity and the rights of LGBT people because we recognize that gay and lesbian people are essentially just like us, people made in the image of God like us and deserving of all the dignity and respect that we desire for us or our children. There is no them. That's what Paul is saying. It's just big old we. All right, that's a... And when you find... That's enough. That's enough. So, so, as, so you realize there he appeals to the image of God, and what does he say? What, what will happen once we realize that we're sinners? We will become the biggest advocate of LGBTQ rights. Why in the world would an Orthodox Christian and become a biggest advocate of LGBTQ rights? Like, and from there, what do you even mean by rights? Like, if, if you're talking about the idea that someone walking down the street should not be assaulted uh, because they're presumed to be gay or something like that, then obviously every Christian ought to be advocating that. If you're talking about, uh, you know, yeah, be, people being harassed and beat up and physically threatened and all that sort of stuff, then fine. Um, but if what you are, are talking about is that someone, say you're going to hire someone to uh, watch your kids and you discriminate over who you're going to watch your kids, and then the next thing you know, you have a lawsuit because you don't want the homosexual uh, men looking after your little boys. Yeah, I don't really, I think that's perfectly legitimate. Um, uh, when it comes to the church and we begin to say only men can preach and uh, homosexuals can't hold office in the church, are we now discriminating against them? Are we violating their quote unquote rights? So even when you begin to throw out a term, if we oppose gay marriage, are we now violating their rights? And if we are violating their rights, and interestingly enough, Time Magazine, let me find this thing real quick. Uh, Time Magazine has this idea that what we ought to be doing is making reparations uh, for all the harm done to LGBT people. And so they have an article, um, it may have come out yesterday, um, it says this, the U.S. can't move forward on LGBTQ rights without reparations. Uh, so you think, in, I think it was until 2003, sodomy was actually illegal. I think the state started erasing them off the books in the 70s. And by 2003, all the, I think there were 14 states left and the Supreme Court kind of overruled uh, a ruling in Texas. And so all the laws were taken off the books. But up until 2003, sodomy was still a punishable uh, crime. And so 
if we're going to make so so is part of what he's advocating here reparations and uh, if if LGBT people's rights have been uh, historically violated and this gets into going all the way back to uh, Jul- Julianne Zobris comments at the beginning that uh, when she reads the Bible she believes that um, homosexuals are being oppressed and so she rejects any scripture so if you think of Moses's Israel how many rights do you think LGBT LGBTQ people had um uh, obviously if a man lies with a man they are put to death and so is uh, are their rights being violated what rights do they have are their dignity is their dignity being violated and what we want to maintain with the image of god it's actually because the homosexual the person engaged in sodomy uh we, we hold them up in dignity that's why we oppose homosexuality homosexuality is actually a uh de-dignifying is not the right word, but it's actually a humiliating act for a man to be pierced by another man. That's a humiliating act. So our opposition to homosexuality is actually rooted in the fact that, no, here's what dignity is. We oppose transgenderism because cutting off your uh, testicles and cutting off your boobs is uh, humiliating, and uh, uh, Romans 1 calls it a um, – their bodies are um, – dishonored it's a dishonoring of their bodies amongst them and so the reason we oppose it isn't is because we hold them in honor um and, and so that's the sort of thing so when jd greer makes these sorts of comments and if people begin to listen to that and then they like it's kind of like that leaven that works its way through the dough if you begin to listen to that po- uh, piece of jd greer and you begin to massage it through your thinking and then you're sitting there going i'm opposing this person in what way do they have a right to be a homosexual? They're a created being, a derived being. Now, you, we can have certain views on uh, what, what certain uh, things of freedom look like in a culture, but ultimately as a Christians, we have to oppose homosexuality. Um, it's just contrary, and we are calling people to repentance from homosexuality um, to being restored to God. And there's a bunch of things in those sermons. I don't know I want to say they're worth listening to, but they're worth listening to only from the standpoint that people are buying into this basic mindset. And that what J.D. Greer is saying today is going to bear fruit downstream, and the downstream fruit of that is going to be pro-feminism, pro-LGBTQ. And these things are intertwined because what they want to do, and, and it even ties in with the J.D. Greer um, tweet from a couple of years ago. And the reason these things are intertwined is because what feminism wants to do is say that our gender identity is a social construction. What the LGBTQ people want to say is that our sexuality is a social construction, um, what the trans people want to say is, yes, I, I have a penis or I have boobs, I have a vagina, whatever it is, but all of those things are not the real me or they're not the social me. And the social me is actually a female, even though I have a penis and all that sort of stuff. The, the, the social me is a, identifies as a female. And so all these things are ultimately intertwined. And it even ties back to this. And this is a quote from J.D. Greer from May 5th, 2018. He's responding to Beth Moore. He says, hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian world take the word of God seriously. And I would say uh, we might need to shake the word complementarian and just embrace the term patriarchy because complementarian is too easily uh, elastic and it is a response to feminism. So it's probably not the best word to begin with. But because even J.D. Greer, who claims he wants to be a, uh, a complementarian and take the word of God seriously, goes on to say this, not just the parts about distinction of roles, but also the tearing down of all hierarchy and his gracious distribution of gifts to all his children. And so in what way, in the world standpoint, you you take Joe Unbeliever, 
who believes there's a minimal distinction between men and women, and most of those distinctions are socially constructed. And then you want to turn around and say, no, these things are uh, somehow in your ontology as a female. They're somehow in your ontology as a male. And then you want to turn around and tear down all hierarchy. But if we tear down all hierarchy, ask Joe Unbeliever if there's a hierarchy if men can preach in a church and women can't. For Joe Unbeliever, that's going to be a hierarchy. And if J.D. Greer wants to tear those things down – uh, he's going to have to eradicate those distinctions. And so anytime, and this is even ties into the Wachowski guy talked about these false binaries. Anytime you have a binary in their head uh, for the unbeliever, you're going to be able to privilege one. That's why they want to talk about white privilege and stuff like that. Because as soon as you have white, and then notice how they go by people of color. Because what they want to do is be able to say, here you have white, here you have Pac, and white is privileged. And as long as you have whiteness, it's privileged over all these other things. And then this privileging position oppresses all of these things down here. And so what we need to do is get rid of all hierarchy and have this great flattening and this great, uh, basically egalitarian world. And what we want to maintain is simply that's an impossible world. It's a world that we can't have because God has created us a world with hierarchies, starting with him at the very top. Um, then you have spiritual beings, and ultimately even one day we'll sit in judgment of angels, according to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, we'll sit in judgment of angels. And then one last comment uh, before we wrap up. Uh, I, I just thought about when uh, J.D. Greer does make the comment, the Bible whispers about sexual thin, sins. Uh, quoting 1 Corinthians 6 made me think of it. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the Apostle Paul says, um, all other sins are outside the body. And so uh, the, the Bible is shouting about fornication in that context is saying, why unite your body with a temple prostitute? Don't you know that it belongs to Christ? All other sins are outside the body. And so so the, there's a couple ways to understand that, but it does seem to be putting sexual sin in a different category than drunkenness, than lying, and these sorts of things. And I would even say there's an intuitiveness where we know that. And that's even why J.D. Greer and a lot of these guys wanted to hitch their wagons to Me Too. And as Christians, we should absolutely oppose all sexual morality and some men abusing women from positions of power. I don't... Sometimes I don't get how conservatives can, you know, balk on that because we want to lean fully and say, nope, absolutely wicked, wrong. Um, but we all know that intuitively from the standpoint, if if you're talking to somebody and your mom and dad had you believe in Santa Claus growing up, you're kind of like, okay, uh, they lied to you about Santa Claus. And no one's like, I can't believe your parents lied to you. But then if you turn around and say, oh, my parents abused me, and what we mean by that is sexual abuse, everyone's like, whoa, the air comes out of the room because we know that something happened to your body at that point. We know there's something different that takes place in sex. And that's why even uh, the Bible's emphasis on the two becoming one again uh, is, is, is fairly unique. So the Bible actually does shout about sexual morality. And earlier I mentioned uh, uh, Jesus calling the Israelites an adulterous generation. Uh, J.D. Greer wants, you know, kind of the chief sin to be idolatry, but throughout the Bible, idolatry is always compared with adultery. It's, it's all basically spiritual adultery. You've turned from your husband. Israel's turned from her husband, Christ, and they've whored after other gods. All through the book of Revelation, the whore of Babylon, uh, the great prostitute, all these sorts of things, all that's set in sexual language because our sexual ethic is reflecting what we think about God. And so I don't want to downplay oppression. There are plenty of prophetic voices uh, to speak out against those things. And as Christians, we should take the whole word of God seriously. Um, but the reality of it is the Bible does shout about those things. So as you think about the left appropriating the Imago Dei and how they want to tease out the implication of that, you, in those discussions, you have to immediately push back and ask them what that is. Ask them what the image of God is. And what we learn from Genesis 1, that it's male and female. And then that's played out through the rest of the Bible, even if you want to read 1 Corinthians 15. And we are being restored to the true righteous. And so what we can't do, which Jules and I think even, um, not right now, J.D. Greer is smart enough not to do it right now, um, but people who are adopting his hermeneutic will get where Jules is 
if they begin to tease out his implications consistently. And what we need to do is ask them, what is the image of God? How is it separate from the law of God? Why are these actions, when God's going into the Canaanites and wiping them all out, why is that an assault on the image of God that is wrong when God is doing these things? And then ultimately from there, you have to ask, is hell uh, ultimately um, an unjust act towards the image of God. And again, if we're just going by what the Bible shouts about, what Jesus talks about, he talks about hell more than he does love. So that's this episode of Campus Preacher Live. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at CampusPreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on was that Instagram, Keith Daryl on Facebook. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to Yeah, give me any feedback in any of those spots, and we'll talk to you next week.